Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 74, Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifo, Part 1. In episode 73, we met Justin Martyr, one of the most interesting Christian theologians in the second century. In this episode, we're going to explore the theology and Christology found in his famous Dialogue with Trifo. This is a book written somewhere between 155 and 161, and it's probably based on a real conversation that he had around the year 135 in Ephesus with Trypho, the Jew, and some of his friends. This is how the conversation gets started. Trypho sees how Justin is dressed and realizes that he's a philosopher. Turns out that Trypho respects philosophers. Good morning, philosopher. In Argos, I was taught by Corinthus, the Socratic philosopher, never to slight or ignore those who wear that gown of yours, but to show them every consideration and to converse with them. Trypho and Justin agree that the task of philosophy is to inquire about the divine, and so they decide to converse about God. Justin then proceeds to tell Trypho about his history of seeking the true philosophy, which we discussed in episode 73. Justin claims to have found the true philosophy in Christianity. And of course, though it's based on a real conversation, what this book really is is positive apologetics against Judaism. It's arguing that Christianity is really the fulfillment of Judaism. In chapter 11, Justin emphasizes that Jews and Christians worship the only God who has ever been, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet Christians enjoy a better and newer covenant with God, initiated by Jesus the Messiah. For his part, Trypho says that Christians have invented a Messiah for themselves and have foolishly trusted in a man rather than in God. And so the argument continues, and much of the book is taken up with quotations from the Greek translation of the Jewish Bible, from the Septuagint mostly, in support of the Christian claim that Jesus really is God's Messiah. Honestly, there are a few very dodgy arguments, but much of what Justin argues is in common to nearly all Christians. For instance, in his use of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 110 as applying to Jesus the Messiah, When we come back, Justin lets the Jews have it. You have murdered the just one and his prophets before him. Now you spurn those who hope in him and in him who sent him, almighty God, the creator of all things. This accusation, of course, doesn't go beyond the New Testament critique of the majority of Jews in Jesus' time being blameworthy for rejecting God's Messiah. But Justin goes beyond this. Because of his Platonic theology, he thinks that God is incapable of any sort of change. But then, God can't want or desire one thing at one time and another thing at another time. He can't in any sense have changed his mind about whether he wants people to obey the law of Moses. 
In chapter 18, Justin asserts that requirements of the law of Moses were imposed on the Jews just because God knew of their sins and their stubbornness. He adds in chapter 19 and 22 that God commanded them to sacrifice to him so that they would not sacrifice to idols. Yet, he adds, it didn't work. And in chapter 16 and 19, bizarrely, Justin claims that the only reason God had for commanding Jews to circumcise their males was so that they would be identifiable as Jews after the Romans had conquered and scattered them. You see, there was a brief time after the Romans had put down the Bar Kokhba rebellion in the 130s that the Jews were forbidden to live in Jerusalem, and that was how the Roman authorities would check whether or not you were a Jew, if you were a man. So Justin, I think, jumps to the conclusion that that was why God had always commanded them to be circumcised since the time of Abraham. In chapter 20, Justin argues that the food laws that were part of the Mosaic law were a punishment for the Hebrews worshiping the golden calf they made after being delivered from Egypt. And in chapter 21, he states that the only reason God allows any Jews to live is so that his name won't be dishonored among the Gentiles. The only reason. In chapter 23, Justin emphasizes that God can't change. We infer that eternally, God wants bad people like the Jews to be loaded down with all sorts of requirements that are unnecessary for better people like the Gentiles. Now, it strikes me that these are all unreasonable and unnecessary claims and that they put God and his motives in a bad light. The reader waits in vain for Justin to express some of the agonized love and sympathy for the Jews that we see in Paul's letter to the Romans, but it's not there. In Justin's defense, I can say only two things. First, tension ran high in this period. Probably for decades at this point, the Jews had been forcing Jesus' followers out of the synagogues. They did this, as Justin repeatedly tells us, by putting curses against Jesus and his followers into their liturgy. So if you were a Jewish Jesus follower, your synagogue mates would notice that you weren't speaking in that portion of the service, and you'd be found out and presumably kicked out. Second, Justin explicitly says that he doesn't hate the Jews and hopes that God will have mercy on them. He says that Jesus has taught Christians to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute them. It seems to me, then, that Justin was not an anti-Semite, although his passions sometimes badly clouded his judgment. When we come back, the heart of the disagreement between Jews and Christians. The heart of Jewish-Christian disagreement has always been whether or not Jesus was and is God's Messiah. Justin argues that he was, but he doesn't only argue for that. According to Justin, Jesus existed as a God even before the creation. Existed as a God 
But didn't he just say that there had only ever been one God, the Creator? Yes, but Justin is using the word God in two different senses. As to the Father, the Creator, there has never been and couldn't ever be another being like Him. He's the only God. But Justin thinks that no one could ever see God, and yet a being referred to as, quote, God, was seen in ancient times. He who is said to have appeared to Abraham, Jacob, and Moses, and is called God, is distinct from God, the Creator. Distinct, that is, in number, but not in mind. For he never did or said anything other than what the Creator, above whom there is no other God, desired that he do or say. Distinct in number. This means that although the Father is a God, that is, one who is called God, and the Son is also God, or a God, that is, one who is called God, they're not the same God. They are two, quote, gods. Is this monotheism? Actually, I think it is. Monotheism is that there is a necessarily unique God, the unique creator of everything else. Monotheism is consistent with there being more than one being, which can be called by the term God. The one God, the one true God, Yahweh, for Justin, is the Father. There's only one God in that sense. However, and he has the New Testament on his side here, the Son can be called God or a God, or can be directly addressed as God, as Theos. One uncontroversial and indisputable example is in chapter 1 of Hebrews. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oils of gladness beyond your companions. Not only is God there used to refer to Jesus, but also you'll notice that the word God was used in two different senses. It was used both for God and for the human Son of God. Now that's potentially confusing, and that's not the normal habit of the New Testament. It almost always reserves the word God for the Father. But still, this is perfectly understandable usage. We use ambiguous titles all the time. For instance, you might call your immediate supervisor boss, and you might call the guy who owns the company boss. That can confuse, but it needn't, if you understand the contexts. Back to Justin Martyr now. Nowadays, Trinitarians who are arguing that the Trinity has always been believed in by all mainstream Christians they will just seize on the fact that Jesus is referred to by the Greek term theos. And I should say, typically without the article, so typically a god, not the god. Although theos without the article, without the the, can be translated as either god with a capital G or as a god. It sort of depends on the context. Typically, this book refers to him as just theos. Is Jesus called God? Yes. Or, equally, he's called a god. Is he the same God as the Father? No. God, the Creator, he says, and Jesus are distinct in number. They are two, they are not one. He says they're one in mind, 
It's not that they disagree. It's not that they're not cooperating. But the highest God, the one God of monotheism, is clearly the Creator. It's the Father. So, in Justin's view, there are two gods, or we should say two, quote, gods, in the sense that there are two beings whom Scripture calls God. One of these is the one true God, the Creator, and the other, Justin thinks, is his Son, the one who eventually became a human being. Needless to say, Trifo isn't going to just agree with this. He demands evidence. Prove to us that the prophetic spirit ever admits the existence of another God besides the Creator of all things. And do be careful not to mention the sun and moon, which, Scripture tells us, God permitted the Gentiles to worship as gods. It will not be the Creator of the world who is the God who said to Moses that he was the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, but rather he who is proved to you to have been seen by Abraham and Jacob, doing the will of the Creator of the universe, and putting into execution his will in the judgment of the people of Sodom. No one with even the slightest intelligence would dare to assert that the Creator of all things left his super-celestial realms to make himself visible in a little spot on earth. How do we know that it was the pre-human Jesus and not God himself appearing to Moses? According to Justin, here in chapter 60, we know this because it is impossible for God, the unique Creator, to leave his heavenly realm to come down to earth and because it's impossible for him to be seen. I have to say that I find this argument bizarre. It's a real head-scratcher. God is supposed to be all-powerful and present everywhere, so to appear to Moses, he wouldn't have to go anywhere, and so he wouldn't have to leave heaven or anywhere else, even if he's present in a special way in some faraway place. He could still manifest in a burning bush in the desert. I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But if I say to your children that the God of their fathers has sent me, they will ask what is his name, and how shall I answer them? I am that I am. Thou shalt say, I am, hath sent me unto you. Could he make himself visible? In some sense, sure. He could cause some human to have a visual perception which represents him, either directly or by creating some temporary object, like a seeming human being to wrestle with. Or he could send an angel who represents him and speaks for him. So there's at least three ways that an omnipotent being could make us have a visual experience of him. By directly causing that experience in our minds, by just creating a temporary physical object, which he then sort of uses like a temporary body almost, or by sending an angel to stand in for him and the angel appears. If angels can manifest in physical form, and seemingly in the Bible, that's one of the things that angels can do. So, why on earth, if God's an omnipotent being, does Justin think that it's impossible for someone to see God? Well, in the book of Exodus, God says this, You cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. Case closed, right? 
God can't be seen. So if someone was seen and was called God, this must be some other God, right? Not God, but somebody else who we can call by that name. It must be the pre-human Jesus and not the Father, right? I say wrong. For one thing, God is all-powerful, and it seems that an all-powerful being should be able to manifest visually to humans in various ways, as we've just described. Also, let's go back to that Exodus statement and put it in some context. Here's more of the passage. You cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. See, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So, evidently, Moses did see God, and this is not the only passage that has Moses seeing God. In the book of Numbers, chapter 12, God is scolding Miriam and Aaron. He says to them, When there are prophets among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. Not so with my servant Moses. He is entrusted with all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly, not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. So, again, Moses does see God. He beholds the form of the Lord, this passage says. So, can a person see God or not? The Torah seems to say both at first glance. And the New Testament might push one towards saying absolutely that God can't be seen. We know that Justin also had and read the Gospel according to John. And in chapter 1, John says, No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Or maybe it's... It is an only Son, God, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Or then again, it could be... It is the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. And Paul says, in the sixth chapter of his first letter to Timothy... Before God, who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who firmly professed his faith before Pontius Pilate, I command you to obey your orders and keep them faithfully until the day when our Lord Jesus Christ will appear. His appearing will be brought about at the right time by God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He alone is immortal. He lives in the light that no one can approach. No one has ever seen him. No one can ever see him. To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. When the Trinity's podcast continues, we'll see if we can resolve this apparent contradiction.
As we saw, different passages in the Bible seem to say that God has never been seen and can't be seen, and also, by the way, God was seen. Clearly now we have to make a distinction. It must be that in one sense a person can see God and even live to tell about it, and in another sense that's not possible. I would suggest that the distinction should be something like this. One can't see God in all his glory, but one can see God if God condescends to appear in some lesser way. For instance, one can see God in a dream or a vision, as in the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And then there's the famous incident in the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah. Is it a dream or is Isaiah actually taken to heaven? So it looks like one can see, even in some cases touch God, by way of an angel who represents God, for instance. And Jesus tells us in John 14 that we can see the Father, so to speak, that is, gain knowledge of the Father by seeing Him, by seeing Jesus. When we come back, Justin accuses the Jews of anthropomorphism. Justin accuses the Jews of naive anthropomorphism. He accuses them of thinking that God is just like a man in the sky, a being with fingers and toes, arms and legs, head and torso. He thinks this is why they believe that it was God who was experienced by the patriarchs. When the Holy Spirit says, I shall see the heavens, the work of our fingers, unless I comprehend the operation of his word, I shall not understand the passage. Then I would be like your teachers who imagine that the Father of the universe, the unbegotten God, has hands and feet and fingers and soul like a compound creature. As a result of this belief, they claim that the Father himself appeared to Abraham and Jacob. If you had understood the words spoken by the prophets, you would not deny that he is God, Son of the One, unbegotten, ineffable God. Did some of the ancient Jews hold that God is in some sense a physical and compound being? It's possible. It's not hard to imagine someone reading many passages in the Jewish Bible in that way. At the same time, I don't see any reason to take this accusation from Justin seriously. I mean, it wouldn't take any kind of naive view about God for the Jews to think that it was God who revealed himself to Abraham, to Moses, to Isaiah, and so on. It just says that it was Yahweh who was experienced. And as far as I know, at least by the time of Justin Martyr, that is the second century, the Jews all thought that God was immaterial and didn't have body parts. Now, there is a difference here between the Hebrew original and the Greek translation. 
in the Hebrew original, you get Yahweh, which is basically a proper name. So when it says that Yahweh was seen, it's naturally taken as, yes, it was that individual. Granted, it could have been through an intermediary, and it could have been just a theophany, just a vision, just a dream. But in any case, the object of perception was Yahweh, that individual. Of course, in the Greek translation, in the Septuagint, and in other Greek translations, they would put just the more generic title, the Lord, in place of Yahweh. And Christian usage had developed to where Christians were very comfortable with there being two lords, that is, with the word Lord being ambiguous. So, for instance, when you see the Old Testament quoted in some of Paul's letters, sometimes when it says the Lord, especially in a quotation, that's God. But then typically for Paul, the Lord is Jesus. Well, how did they get into this pickle of having such an ambiguous word, this title that could refer to two different beings? They believe that Psalm 110.1 had been fulfilled, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool for your feet. So Christians believe that the Lord that was being addressed here was Jesus. They took this to be a prophecy about the exaltation of Jesus after his resurrection. So there's the precedent for referring to him as the Lord Jesus. This didn't confuse them with the Lord God Almighty, that is, with Yahweh. In their minds, they were still clearly distinct. As you see, for instance, at the beginning of every letter in the New Testament that's attributed to Paul. Every time, greetings are sent from God, oh, and also from Jesus. That's not redundant. And then there's the famous statement in 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul confesses belief in one God, that's the Father, and also in one Lord, that's the Lord Jesus. We discussed this in episodes 14, 15, and 16 of the Trinity's podcast. So in the Hebrew, it said that they saw Yahweh straight up, but what Justin was reading was the Greek, and it says they saw the Lord. Justin said, aha, there are two lords. There's the Lord God, the Father, God Almighty. Oh, and there's also the Lord Jesus. Well, some of these lords in the Old Testament must be the Lord Jesus. Really? Now, let's suppose that it's right that Jesus always existed. And let's also suppose it's right that it was through Jesus that God created the cosmos. Still, it's going a lot farther than that, a lot farther, to say that any time any God or Lord was seen by Old Testament saints, that that was really Jesus. You can see him, but you can't see the other God, the highest God. According to this theory, Jesus had this huge ancient career. Now, where is this mentioned in the Gospels, any of the Gospels, even John? Let me grant for sake of argument that Paul teaches that Jesus always existed, that he's divine, and that he created the world. Really, where does Paul say that every time the Jews experienced God, that that was really Jesus? Nowhere, right? The only place I can think of that even resembles such a statement is 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul is talking about the rock that the Israelites experienced when they were wandering in the wilderness back in Exodus and Numbers. 
and he says the rock was Christ. In brief, he's talking typologically there. And for a good explanation of this, I recommend checking out James Dunn's Christology in the Making, pages 183 and 184, where he gives you a good explanation of what's going on. So then it looks like the one place that could be talking about Jesus's career, basically standing in for God throughout the whole Old Testament, the one place that sort of looks like that at first glance turns out not to be that when Paul is interpreted very carefully. Also, in considering the New Testament as a whole, I think we should consider the beginning of the letter to the Hebrews. God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he has also created the worlds. Who is it that spoke in ancient times? God, in many different ways. Oh, and in contrast to that, in these last days, just in recent times, he's spoken to us by his Son. So it doesn't say that it was always the Son all along. It's always been the Son. That's the only God you've ever seen or heard. In fact, it seems to assume the falsity of that. Now, of course, there is a pervasive New Testament teaching that it was through angels that the law was revealed, but that's consistent with what we're saying here. If God reveals himself through an angel, it's still God who is being perceived. The point is that there's nothing at all compelling about Justin's idea that it was always another God, always the Son. Now, when some people read John 1.18, No one has ever seen God. It is the only Son who is close to the Father's heart who has made him known. They jump to the conclusion, well, that was always Jesus that was seen because you can't see God and yet somebody was seen who is called God. And so that must be God the Son and not God the Father. But of course, that's not what John 1.18 actually says. It does say that no one has ever seen God. And it does say that now God has been best revealed through Jesus. That's what the book of John is about. But it doesn't say or even imply or hint that that was Jesus all along who was experienced by Abraham and Moses and Isaiah, etc. It just doesn't say that. It's consistent with that. But if you're looking for support for Justin's theory, it's not here. So to sum up, Justin's theory seems to depend on the premise that God cannot be seen, that God cannot make himself be visible in any sense. A dubious premise. As we've seen, it's not very hard to come up with a sense in which God is not seen and can't be seen, even though in a related sense God has been seen. 
But if God has been seen, then there didn't have to be this stand-in who was seen every time it was said that God was seen in the Old Testament. And even if we always think that there was some kind of intermediary there, that God was only seen indirectly, which, you know, is not really suggested by some of the passages, particularly the one in Numbers where it says that Moses saw God's form. But anyway, if we should take it that God is only indirectly perceived and the one who is directly perceived would be some intelligent intermediary like an angel, well, that may be so. But then an angel who's standing in for God would speak for God and would be addressed as God. The messenger, as it were, takes on the identity of the one who sent him. So it'd still be a further claim that that was always Jesus. And as we've seen, the New Testament simply doesn't say that. Next time on the Trinity's podcast... Your statement that this Christ existed as a God before all ages and then consented to be born and become a man, yet that he is not of human origin, appears to me to not only be paradoxical, but preposterous. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Until next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.